Can I have you please open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Now we haven't met for a few weeks for various reasons. Last week, weather. So let me just recap quickly. The book of Romans begins with Paul's opening salutation and personal introduction of himself and his ministry. That was important because he had never been to Rome. They didn't know him. They heard about him, but didn't know him. So he opens with a greeting, gives a quick introduction of himself and his ministry. And next, Paul presents the theme of this epistle, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in verses 16 and 17. Verse 18 of chapter 1 begins the main body of the book, which runs through chapter 15, verse 13. The topics that Paul will be addressing, which will all relate back to the theme, the gospel of Jesus Christ, are as follows. First of all, condemnation, which covers verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3. Condemnation, in other words, all people apart from Christ are lost and on their way to hell and need God's righteousness for salvation. Next, he gets into justification. How a person acquires God's righteousness. That covers chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. Then sanctification. How a person lives a righteous life for God once saved. Chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 39. And then number 4, restoration. Using Israel as an example of God's calling being permanent and irrevocable. Chapter 9, verse 1. To chapter 11, verse 36, and then application, which is the practical demonstration or outworking of God's righteousness in the believer's life. That covers chapter 12, verse 1, and then takes us to the end, chapter 15, verse 13, takes us to the end of the main body of the epistle. And then that is followed by the conclusion and closing benediction, chapter 15, verse 14, through the end of the book. Now, this evening we find ourselves in the first main section of the book, which runs again from chapter 1, 8, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. As we have said before, this first section falls under the heading of condemnation, judgment, because in it Paul wants to prove that the whole human race apart from Jesus Christ is condemned by God. As we have said, condemnation is a judicial term denoting that denoting that fallen man is guilty before a holy righteous God of violating his laws and thereby sentenced by him, by God, to spend eternity in hell for those crimes. Now after looking at these verses, the question that Paul anticipates his readers will be asking themselves is something like this, well, what about the good people? What about the moral people? You know, those people who aren't murderers, fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals. Think of the last part of chapter 1. What about those people who aren't thieves, liars, idolaters, and haters of God? You know, the people who are basically good, decent people. Where do they stand with God? Well, first of all, the people asking such a question would no doubt agree with what Paul had to say in the previous section about the pagans and how... They are worthy of judgment or condemnation 
because of the immoral, depraved lives they are living. But, you know, certainly good people won't be judged by God. Right, Paul? Well, Paul anticipates this thinking. And in chapter 2, he starts off by addressing the moral pagan. Moral, quote-unquote, pagan. Who did not commit the sins named in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, but who sought to live a moral life. Now, the Jews would also fall into this category, and maybe Paul had them in mind primarily. And so in chapter 2, Paul begins by dealing with the moralist who thinks they're right with God because of all the good things they do and all the bad things they don't do. And because they can point to their morality, well, they have a false sense of righteousness and security with regard to coming judgment. Look, there are many people in the world today who outwardly seem like decent moral people. You know, they oppose evil and live upright, law-abiding lives. You know, they love their families, believe in God. Many go to church, and yet they are not born again. They are what the Bible calls professors, but not possessors. Paul talked about these in Titus 1, verse 16, when he said, They profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Look, what Paul is saying is, on the outside they seem to be, to be moral, decent people. But God sees the wickedness in their hearts. Look, the gospel of Jesus Christ is only understood and benefited from insofar as a person understands that they are guilty and condemned before God. Folks need to understand they're not basically good people who can climb the wall of salvation pretty much on their own, but they need a little push from God to get over that last little bit. I just need a little help, Lord, because I'm pretty good. I think I can make it most of the way. Now, that's the thinking a lot of people are harboring under. Because we have been brought up in our nation primarily with a works righteousness form of salvation. You do good works, you earn your righteousness, and you get heaven. It's our job as Christians in a loving way to let people know you're not a good person. Oh, yes, I am. May I ask you, who told you you were a good person? God didn't tell you that. Somebody told you that, but they're wrong. And we're going to see that clearly in chapter 3. There is none who does good, no, not one, not any, right? But a lot of people don't realize this, and it becomes our responsibility, because that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to save good people. He came to save condemned sinners. And they don't need a little help to get them pushed over the wall of salvation, because they're doing most of it on their own. They need a full-blown pardon, because they are condemned by God in the strongest possible way. And so whether they are the immoral pagan of chapter 1, or the so-called moral man of the beginning of chapter 2, or the religious Jew or person, mentioned later in chapter 2, whether Jew or Gentile, good or bad, all apart from Jesus Christ and condemned before the righteous judge of all the earth. 
Let me just stop and say that the real contrast Paul is addressing in the first main section of Romans is, I think, primarily between the Gentile pagan and the moral slash religious Jew. Now, the Jews would have agreed with everything Paul said in chapter 1 with regard to the practices of the pagan Gentiles and the judgment of God they were due. In fact, they would have no doubt cried, Amen! As Paul was raking them over the coals, the pagan Gentiles in chapter 1. Go get them, Paul! It's right! They're terrible! And they would have no doubt cried amen to Paul's denunciation of these folks, while at the same time thinking they were right with God and exempt from such judgments themselves. Look, the Jews believed they were exempt from judgment for three main reasons. Three things they believed in. First of all, they believed in nationalism. In other words, they were descendants of Abraham. And that's all they needed. Pretty much. In fact, they believed that Father Abraham sat outside the gates of hell to pluck even any unbelieving Jew. You don't have to be a believer even if you're Jewish. But Father Abraham stood outside the gates of hell and would pluck any unbelieving Jew even from the line of those going in because no Jew God would ever let go to hell because Abraham was their father. They believed in nationalism. They were descendants of Abraham. Number two, they believed in legalism. Legalism. In other words, salvation by works. They believed, and maybe you have never heard this before. This is a little fascinating. They believed that because they were a part of the nation of Israel, kept the traditions of their forefathers and the works of the law, although they didn't, but they thought they did, that they were righteous before God and exempt from his judgment. And guys, they expected to be uh, treated by God not as individuals but as a national unit they believed that God was obligated to the whole nation and therefore their individual sins really didn't matter all that much because they were under a kind of national salvation and then number three they believed in sacramentalism circumcision they believed that because they were circumcised, that through the sacrament of circumcision, they became part of God's covenant made with, with, uh, uh, with Israel through Abraham and were therefore immune or exempt from God's judgment. Now listen, sacramentalism is something that both Roman Catholics and many Protestants have fallen into as well. There's a lot of folks who were baptized as infants, the sacrament of baptism, and that was necessary to go all the way into salvation. But you had to have that. It's called baptismal regeneration. It started a person down the road of salvation, but wasn't complete in and of itself, but you had to have it to start. And if you add to that, religious and moral works like going to church and doing what is right, they believed that because of these things, they were exempt from God's judgment. A lot of Catholics, a lot of Protestants believe that. Sacramentalism. If you're baptized in water, basically you're saved. Or you're pretty far along in getting saved. As one writer put it, and I'm quoting, he said, 
There is some kind of a still small voice in everybody that constantly convinces them that in the end, it's going to be okay. That God would never judge me because I'm a good person. The moralist sees sin in different shades of severity and justifies himself on the basis that even though he's not perfect, I admit I'm not perfect. Pretty close, but not perfect. Yet his conduct, he believes, she believes, is still much better than others, overt sinners, you know, murderers, bank robbers, uh, you know, whatever, you know, that whole thing, right? Even though they're not perfect, they're much better than all those other people uh, who are really bad sinners. And so because I'm not as bad as them, I'm going to be accepted into heaven. Because I'm basically good. You know, the Pharisees were the classic example of this kind of thinking. Jesus pointed out, he said of the Pharisees, you judge yourselves by comparing yourselves with others to prove your righteousness. Here's the problem with that. You can always find somebody a little deeper in the mud than you. And if you stand next to them... By comparison, you look pretty good. The problem is they're not the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard. Now stand next to him and say, how you look. But the devil's got people convinced that what they need to do is compare themselves to others to prove how righteous they are. That's a fatal mistake. But people are falling into it all the time. And the moral self-righteous person is the hardest to reach. Let me say it again. The moral self-righteous person is the hardest to reach, much harder to reach than the hardened sinner who has hit rock bottom. You know why? Because their self-righteousness has inoculated them to true righteousness. They've got just enough self-righteousness to make them think they're fine. But what they don't have is true righteousness that comes from Jesus. Because they're focusing on themselves, what they do for God. You know, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus talked about those who were neither hot nor cold, but instead were lukewarm. Here's how I interpret that. Of course, the hot and cold, that's easy. Those that are hot are Christians on fire for the Lord. Those that are cold are the overt sinners of our society who, they're not churchgoers, they're not Bible readers, they're hardcore sinners, and they like it that way. They're under no pretense that they have any godliness. And a lot of them kind of revel in the fact they're going to hell, which is a little sad. What about the lukewarm? Who are they? And I've heard a lot of Christians say, well, the lukewarm are lukewarm Christians. Yeah, but Jesus began this section in Revelation 3 by saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into them and sup with them and he with me. Jesus is on the outside of this church knocking to get in. And yet this is a very... This, the, the church of Laodicea, what do I interpret them to be? Well, I'm not saying they're exclusively this but i think they are predominantly this what the liberal church 
So a lot of folks in our country that are liberal, quote-unquote Christians, at least that's how they define themselves. They're very much into social justice and equity, and they deny some of the most basic doctrines of the Christian faith. They don't believe in the virgin birth. Some of them don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, that he's not the only way to heaven. There's many roads and so on. Those are fundamental doctrines that if you deny, well, I know the divinity of Christ and the bodily resurrection of Christ, you can't be a Christian. Yet they believe they are. Now, God loves them. Jesus is knocking on the door of that church on their hearts to let the, him in. But they're lukewarm. They have a form of godliness, but have not made a true commitment to Jesus Christ and are therefore religious but lost they're hard to reach why because they already think they have a relationship with god in fact they're much better than you and me because they really care about the poor they're in the social justice movement equity is a big deal they got the rainbow flag out in front of their church all are welcome here we love everybody well we love everybody and all are welcome here too as long as they're truly seeking the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in truth. Look, it isn't loving to teach a lie that's going to keep people out of health, out of heaven forever, cast them into hell. That's not loving. Because somebody comes in who's living a gay lifestyle or some other sin the Bible condemns, and I embrace them and say, You're fine. We love you. God loves you. Just keep doing what you're doing. That's not love you got to love people enough to tell them the truth. Jesus did. So guys, Paul moves from the unrighteous heathen in chapter 1 to the self-righteous hypocrite in chapter 2. And in so doing, he is going to point out that the ethical, moral person, so-called, primarily the, the Jews, but also Gentiles, um, he's going to point out that the ethical moral person is going to find themselves listen in the same hell as the gentile pagan idolater of chapter one if they don't see themselves as sinners and turn their life over to jesus christ as their savior actually paul lays out six principles of judgment in the first 16 verses of romans chapter two i'll give them to you you don't have to worry about writing them down we're going to go over them as we approach each one but this, these are really kind of um, six principles, but they're really kind of indictments that Paul, acting as a prosecuting attorney, again, is indicting now the moralist and then the religionist, like he indicted the pagan Gentile in chapter 1. But here they are. Knowledge, truth, guilt, deeds, impartiality, and motives. Now, it'll be clear when we go through this what... I'm talking about. But again, Paul builds his case against the moralist and religionist, often the same person. That's why I think that, you know, when he talks about the moral person, the religious person, in some ways he's in his mind, he's combining both with regard to the Jewish people. But there were some pagan moral Gentiles. Moral in the sense that they didn't give in to the revelry that was the first century Greco pagan greco-roman world you did have some philosophers that had disciples that t taught you know they were against the bacchanalian life that life of party and drunkenness 
um, immorality, certainly homosexuality, but also just uh, having sex with everybody uh, and so on. Uh, so you had some people in, in that culture that were moral, uh, in a sense, but it's Gentiles. But I think Paul had in mind primarily the moralist, religionist, talking about the Jewish people. And, and it, we'll see that as we go. But the first thing he, the first principle he indicts um, these people, uh, the moralists and religionists, is knowledge. First thing he indicts them over is knowledge. Verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Let me stop there. The verse begins with the word therefore, which ties this section back to what preceded it in chapter 1. Paul is saying that what is true of those spoken of in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, is also true of you. Who? You, the so-called good person, the moral person so-called. He says, you are also without excuse. You're clapping your hands and saying amen as we show the pagan is condemned. But now we're going to turn the light of God's truth, knowledge on you. And therefore you are inexcusable, O man, he says in verse 1. Why? Because you know the truth. You know the truth. And how do unbelievers prove they know the truth? They prove it by judging others. In other words, if a person didn't know right from wrong, well, they couldn't judge anyone for doing what is wrong. The very fact that they judge others for breaking God's standards proves they know. That's the key word. They know God's standards, and therefore they are also without excuse. Look, often the moralist, and sometimes they're atheists. There's a lot of atheists who pride themselves on their morality. But often the moralist, who is sometimes an atheist, doesn't realize that when they condemn others for being immoral, they're actually proving the existence of a moral God. You know, C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist, at one time was an atheist. Why was he an atheist? Because he said, this is his testimony, I didn't believe in the existence of God because of all the evil in the world. I figured that if there was a, a God, a righteous God, a loving God, he wouldn't allow all the evil in the world. So he couldn't exist. And then one day he said, I started thinking, wait a minute, how do I know there's evil in the world? I mean, how do I know right from wrong unless, because evolution can't produce that. Evolution is amoral, chemical uh, interactions that produce, uh, uh, you know, different results that they say evolve into us and morality with it, but that's ridiculous. There's no morals in chemical reactions. So he said, I started thinking, well, there had to be a supreme being that made me then encoded into my heart what was right and wrong according to his divine standards and it was that thinking that he said led him to faith in jesus christ look guys many atheists and skeptics are guilty of this 
They judge others for not living up to a standard of right and wrong without realizing they are proving the existence of a righteous God who has written his laws in our hearts. Now he's going to hit this pretty hard in a few verses. But Paul's point in this section of Romans is that when a moralist judges and condemns another for certain behaviors, they are often guilty of doing those very behaviors themselves. And when they point an accusing finger of condemnation at another, right, what happens? Three of their fingers are pointing right back at themselves. Well, we all fall into this. We all fall into this. Um, we always are harder on other people's sins than our own. Even if we're committing the same thing, we don't even see it. I love what my pastor used to say, Chuck Smith. It's amazing to me how terrible my sins look when you're committing them. Now, when I'm committing them, they don't look so bad. So I'm very gracious to myself. When you're committing them, oh man, God get them. That's terrible. But it reminds me of King David. And you all know this story, so I'm not going to take the time to dig it out in detail. But you remember how 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle. David stayed home and sent Joab as general. Why? Because David was up in his middle 50s at this point, lived most of his life in the trenches. Spring of the year was battle time because that's when kings would go out to, to wage warfare. And, uh, but David was tired of living in the trenches. He was tired of K-rations. He, he just built himself a brand new palace. And he wanted to stay home and enjoy some of the fruits of his labor. You know, let the younger guys get out there and fight the battles of the Lord. Well, as the old saying goes, idleness is the devil's workshop. And so one evening, in the patio, uh, rooftops in Israel are patios. So one evening, David is walking on the patio of his palace and looks down, because nothing was higher than the palace. It was on high ground. Looked down. You know the story. Saw a beautiful woman bathing Bathsheba. Lusted after her. Sent his servants. Uh, they, they came and got her. And her and David had a passionate night of, of immorality and all. And uh, David figured it was over. Well, two or three months later, she sends David word, look, I'm pregnant. And now David panics. Because this woman was married to one of his mighty men, Uriah. You got your mighty man in the trenches fighting the battles of God while you're sitting home taking it easy and having an affair with this man's wife. He did not want that to hit social media. That would have been terrible. So he decides he's going to call Uriah back from the, the front, the battle. When he comes back, give me a quick update. What's happening? Great, thank you. Go home. Spend some time with your wife, thinking he would sleep with his wife and nobody would be the wiser that it wasn't Uriah's child. It was David's. But Uriah was a man of character. David tried to get him drunk a couple of nights, but he wouldn't go home. Why? Because my buddies are in the trenches and I will not enjoy my wife while my buddies are fighting the battles of the Lord. Well, David had a problem on his hand. He had never come across that kind of uh, character. And so he concocts a very evil plan. He writes some orders for his general, Joab. 
as Uriah delivered them. Uriah didn't know what was in this sealed message. But when he gave it to Joab, it's, David said, look, put Uriah in the hottest battle right up against the wall where the archers are, and at one point give the word and pull all the soldiers back so that he's killed. I can't even, can't even imagine what Joab, which was not the best guy in the world either, but I can't even imagine what went through Joab's mind. Horrible. And that's what happened. And so Uriah was killed. Word came, Bathsheba went into mourning, finished her mourning period, and David sent and took her and married her. Now think about this. Nobody knows what's happened but God. To the kingdom, it looks like David, how magnanimous a king do we have? Here, one of his soldiers gets killed on the battlefield, and he comes in and marries his widow, gives her a home, a name. Boy, did David thought he was clear, right? Until one day God sent Nathan the prophet, a good friend of David's. And he told David a story. Now remember, David was a shepherd at one time. So Nathan says, David, uh, I'll tell you a little story. He said, there was two men in your kingdom, one poor, one very wealthy. The, the wealthy man had many flocks and herds. The poor man had only one little ewe lamb, a little female lamb. It was like a pet. It ate from the family's table. It slept with the family in bed like a pet. They loved, he loved this little lamb. One day the rich man had company. And instead of taking from his own flocks to kill an animal to feed his guests, he goes and takes by force his neighbor's one little ewe lamb. David flipped out. This guy is going to die. I don't care who he is, and he's going to repay fourfold. Nathan said, David, you are the man. God took you from the sheepfold and made you king over all of Israel. He gave you a harem with many, many wives. And yet you took from your soldier his only wife and you killed him to get her. God has said, you're not going to die, David, but the sword is never going to depart from your family from now on. And it's true. Up until that point, David's career as a king, as a man of God, kept going up, up, upward trajectory. After Bathsheba, it started to decline. After Bathsheba and him killing Uriah. And his family was thrown into turmoil, and there was a lot of problems that never they never recovered from. But it's interesting how David was so focused on another man's sin and so blind to how he had committed the same sin but was so again blind to his own fault it's a good lesson for all of us we often don't realize how self-righteous we are and we need to examine ourselves to see how we deal with the sins of others are we hard on them are we condemning do we write them off as a lost cause or a worthless excuse for a Christian? You'll know how far along you're getting in your walk with the Lord, how much you're growing. 
when you see yourself, and I see myself more honestly, as Paul said, O wretched man that I am, right? I am the chief of sinners, he said. Now there's a man who walks with God. A man who's not really walking with God tends to praise himself and build himself up and so on. But the closer you get to Jesus, the more you grow, the more aware you'll be of your own sins, and the more you'll want to overlook the sins of others and just pray for them and love them. But see, the Jews were extremely judgmental against the pagan Gentiles, but they were guilty of committing many of the same sins they condemned the pagans for committing. You know, guys, a person doesn't have to sink to the same level as an overt reprobate to still be under the condemnation and judgment of God. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we know what he meant by that. You have to understand something, the culture he was speaking into. The Jewish people believed that the Pharisees and the scribes were so righteous and godly that if only two people made it into heaven, one would be a scribe, the other would be a Pharisee. That's where people were coming from. And Jesus had to dismantle that by saying, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're not going to even see the kingdom of heaven. And I'm sure their mouths hit the, hit the ground because how could anybody be more righteous than them? Well, their righteousness is an outward righteousness. It's a show. It's a facade. But God sees the heart. And God looks at the heart. And true righteousness doesn't happen from the outside working its way in. It happens in the inside working its way out. Romans 2 verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And again, think of chapter 1 verses 24 to 32. Now guys, at this point, the moral Jew in particular would immediately say, Not me! I absolutely do not do the same things as the pagans did. But you see, what the Jewish people didn't realize, something, in fact, that Paul himself didn't understand for much of his life and addresses in detail in chapter 7, is that sin starts in the heart before it ever works its way out into our daily lives, and that God does not just look at, at the outward actions of our lives to determine our guilt. He also looks at the inward attitudes of our hearts as well. That's the problem with religion. It focuses so much on the outward, you know. How many hours do you spend in prayer or reading the Bible? How many days do you go to church? How many candles do you light? How many rosaries do you pray? It's all outward stuff. And yet God looks at the heart. That's what he's looking for, a heart that has been redeemed, sanctified, through faith in Christ. He doesn't just look at our outward actions, but he looks at the inward attitudes to determine our guilt. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. And of course you know these, but let's just read them. Matthew 5, starting with verse 21. 
Of course, Jesus spoke these words uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.21, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means you fool, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, excuse me, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. I think Raka means empty-headed one. All right? That's bad enough. But if you say you fool, you're in danger of hell fire. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus Christ is taking all the things the Pharisees had taught and the scribes and so on about outward righteousness. And he's telling people, look, when God says thou shalt not murder, yeah, he was talking outwardly, of course, but he was also looking at the heart because if you hate people, in the eyes of God, you've already murdered them in your heart. And all sin starts in the heart. For most folks, it never gets taken beyond the heart they never go out and actually murder somebody, but in the eyes of God, they're still guilty. Same with adultery. A lot of people would never commit physical adultery, but they lust after others constantly. And in the eyes of God, that's just like committing adultery in his eyes. Even if the act is never actually committed. Look at Matthew 23. Matthew 23, let's pick it up in verse 25. Where Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee! First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 33, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Because again, it was all outward with these guys. And Jesus nails it. You worried about the outside of the cup? Cleanse the inside, let it overflow, and cleanse the outside also. Righteousness starts in the heart. A whitewashed tomb, that was a great one. Boy, that was wonderful. You see, during the three major feast days of the year, which was uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, you had Jews from all over the known world making, pilgr uh, making pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Some of them had never been. They lived all their life hoping to get to Jerusalem one time, probably for Passover. That was the number one on the list. But they didn't know the area. They had never been there. Now, coming from a far place, what if they had stumbled over a tomb? Well, they would have been defiled. They wouldn't be able to keep the feast. So as a courtesy, you had, uh, I don't know what they were called, a whitewash community, uh, you know, where they would whitewash the tombs so that they would be very visible. And, um, and visitors knew they would do, do this. Um, you know, and so they knew where the tombs were and to stay away. But it became such a powerful illustration 
of the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees, who whitewashed their lives on the outside, but inside their hearts were full of all uncleanness and vileness. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And he said in verse 33, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? How, what does he mean? They couldn't be saved? They were irredeemable? No, but they thought they were righteous. They were so fixated on the outward acts of piety, they neglected the heart completely. Guys, self-righteous moral people make two fatal mistakes. First, they do not understand the height of God's holiness. And second, they don't comprehend the depths of their own sinfulness. Again, getting back to this idea, I'm a good person. You remember in Matthew 19, you can read it on your own. At one point, we are introduced to a rich, young ruler, right? What does that tell us? Well, it tells us he was young and rich. That's obvious. A ruler. Well, it means he was a ruler of a synagogue. He was a religious guy. And he had followed Jesus, I think, somewhat, but he felt something was still missing. So he comes to Jesus and says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, that is God. So what was he saying? One of two things. Was Jesus saying, don't call me good, because I'm not God. Only God is good. Or was he saying, are you calling me good because you recognize that I am God? That gets my vote. Okay? But... Good master. Only God is good. See, when you define goodness by God's standard, here it is. It's moral perfection. People think they're good if they stand next to me and go, I'm a lot better than him. Well, maybe you are. I'm not the standard. Jesus is the standard. He is good. And the Greek word means a goodness that goes through and through, not an outward surfacey kind of thing where you keep up a facade. We're talking about a goodness that goes through and through. Only God is truly good. And if you're not, people say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I think I'm good enough to get into heaven. I got news for you. Jesus said, if you're not perfect, you're not good enough. Oh, come on. Then who can possibly be saved? Read the chapter. Matthew 19. What did Jesus say? With, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, as Paul is going to continue on in Romans, he's going to tell us, I'll give you a little sneak preview of what's coming. He's going to tell us that the righteousness that gets us into heaven has to come from God. And by Jesus, when he died on the cross, he opened the way for all people to be saved, but you have to receive him. And when you open your heart to receive him, he comes inside through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And now you're good because God lives inside of you who is good. And of course, Jesus took our sinfulness, nailed it to Calvary, and gave us in return his righteousness. We'll talk at, about that at length as we continue through the book. But guys, Paul's logic is clear. You who condemn others for, but this is what he's saying, you who condemn others for their evil practices prove you know the righteous standard of God, 
which means God's laws are written in your heart. That's how you know it, how you know what's right and wrong. And therefore you condemn yourselves when you condemn others because you're guilty of doing the same things, if not outwardly, then inwardly. And that's the whole point. And Paul is systematically going through, the. he starts with the easiest person to nail as a sinner, the overt pagan, idolater, you know, or they worshiped their, their false gods. They thought they were true gods, but they, the pagan worshiped their gods through sexual orgies because all these were fertility gods and goddesses, and you worship them through sexual orgies. That was the big draw for the pagans. They, they enjoyed what their religion promoted. But Paul is saying, look, it, yeah, it's easy to say amen when we condemn over pagans. But how about you moral folks? How about you, the folks that think you're really a good person? Or because you go to church, the religious person, you're, you're fine with God. You're right. God's, you know. As a Catholic, I knew people that went to church every single day of the week. And when I was young, I thought to myself, wow, how holy and righteous are they? That's amazing. I could never be that close to God. Not realizing, because I hadn't read the Bible yet, this is what keeps people away from God. Religion. Because it gives them a false sense of righteousness and that they're fine with God. They're better than me because they go to church every single day. I don't. How could I be as righteous as them? And so you have our president in the spring, a man who advocates the killing of children by the thousands, makes it easy to get abortions and so on. I saw him interviewed on Ash Wednesday with the ashes on his head. Interview people think that smearing some ashes on their forehead is making them right with God? That's sad. But that's exactly how religion is. If you do these outward things, that's all God wants. No, it's not all he wants. What's your heart? So we'll leave it there. We'll pick it up next time, God willing, with the second one that Paul builds this indictment around, the word truth. And we'll see that next time. So, Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you love us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to come to the earth to be born, to grow up as a member of the human race, and then to go to the cross and die for our sins and rise from the dead, conquering death and giving us new life. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in this incredible book. Please, Lord, keep opening our understanding to the things you have placed here for our learning because I don't believe a Christian can be a strong, solid believer who doesn't have a grasp on what you have taught us through the book of Romans. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.